Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Dr. Todd Schlesinger for Dialogues in Dermatology. And today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Lindy Fox from the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Fox. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Happy you're here. Today, we're going to be speaking about acute inflammatory edema, a mimicker of cellulitis in critically ill patients. This is a fascinating topic that I learned a lot about uh, by reading through uh, the article uh, in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And Dr. Fox, what is this entity? Basically, it's a state where patients present uh, with acute erythema um, in predisposed areas, um, typically patients in the intensive care unit where the primary physician in that unit is most often concerned about cellulitis and calls us to see the patient. But it basically is a benign condition where the skin becomes erythematous overlying um, areas of acute edema in critically ill patients. So in that hospitalized patient where you have multiple different comorbidities going on and and a complicated medical situation oftentimes as I've worked as well in inpatient service during training. How does this entity present? How do you start thinking about it? Yeah, you know, um, I think it's a really good example of inpatient dermatologists being present in the hospital enough to be able to see certain patterns emerging. And um, it continued to occur that we'd get called to the bedside typically and a patient in the ICU or who had recently been in the ICU where the question was, why are they red and is this cellulitis? And that was mostly because the primary physician didn't have another name to call it. So we uh, would look at the patient and we would say, well, it doesn't look like cellulitis because the erythema is too confluent. It was usually involving the abdomen, the upper thighs, and the mons area and didn't seem to be affecting areas where there was naturally applied pressure, so body folds or or the back, or even where a compression device was applied, for example, a pneumatic compression device on the legs. But it wasn't something that we had a name to give it, and different physicians called it different things. Some people called it the erythema of the ICU. Some people called it erythema of edema. There really wasn't a name. You couldn't go look it up. But we began to see a pattern of very similar questions, uh, very similar presentations, excuse me, um, where everybody kind of looked the same. And when you see the pattern emerging over and over again, then you begin to wonder, well, what is this and how can I better characterize it? And that's what sort of led us to collect our cases and try and figure out what are the features that lead one to make this diagnosis and rule out the entities in the differential diagnosis. Interesting. And you do present cases in the article. So looking at the different cases, you know, what's the typical patient look like? You've already said a few of the uh, typical features yeah. on presentation that you now sort of identified. So what does a typical patient look like? So typically, like I've already said, the patient is, is in the intensive care unit. Typically, they are um, either overweight or obese based on BMI. And they're often in a situation where they are in a state of anasarca because of multiple different confounding factors, including 
fluid overload uh, or perhaps um, organ dysfunction like cardiac, renal, or liver dysfunction, or maybe hypoalbuminemia associated with one of those. And the combination of those things results in um, an acute presentation of a blanching erythema in the abdomen and the upper thighs. They're often on antibiotics, sometimes because the ICU physician is concerned that what they're looking at is cellulitis, but often for other reasons that they may be critically ill and in the ICU. So there are often other reasons that the patient may be on, on broad-spectrum antibiotics. They don't necessarily, however, have to have a fever or a leukocytosis or be on pressors or anything like that. So it's really about looking at the patient and then being able to say, okay, this area of confluence of erythema also has with it some other clinical features that are quite distinctive. For example, poderange changes in the areas of erythema or accentuation of the edema in areas of striae where there may be um, abdominal striae in a pregnant patient, which is one of the patients that we had. And then if you sort of move skin away where skin naturally opposes skin. For example, in the folds, you'll see that the erythema, the edema, and the poderange changes are absent in those areas. And if you roll the patient over, even if the back and flanks are involved, the middle of the back where there's pressure is spared, and the buttocks tends to be spared. And there tends to be a very sharp demarcation between um, the areas where there's naturally applied pressure and where the um, edema sort of is allowed to, to sit and accumulate. So that's the typical presentation. So really it seems like getting the edema out of the skin, however that might be, even if it's localized, sort of clears that condition in that area and it moves exactly. somewhere else. Well, yeah. Exactly, and it's one of the clinical clues that you use at the bedside to be able to differentiate this entity from, example, what might be in the differential diagnosis, such as true cellulitis, which is not going to preferentially affect areas where there's no pressure. It's an infection that's going to be circumferential, for example. That makes perfect sense. So you mentioned cellulitis, and you mentioned how it differs clinically from cellulitis in several ways. Mm -hmm. Are there other things that you consider in the differential diagnosis as well? I know you maybe mentioned a few, touched on a few, but I, uh, I think it might be interesting to hear more about what else could be in the differential besides uh, infectious cellulitis. There are multiple articles, manuscripts now written on the concept of pseudocellulitis, so mimickers of cellulitis. And I think any, but anything within that category would be fair game. But the first things that come to mind would be entities that would cause significant edema as well as erythema. So that would be, for example, pyomyositis, which is a deep muscle infection. But again, that tends to be one um, deep, large muscle, often of the pelvic girdle. So the location of the thighs is good, but it's not bilateral, um, symmetric, and, and doesn't move up into the abdomen. If something is acute and moving quickly, you may worry about necrotizing fasciitis, but again, you wouldn't see the moving through fascial planes that quickly with the patient being as stable as they tend to be um, with acute inflammatory edema. Some chemotherapy uh, medications, such as gemcitabine, can give you a pseudocellulitic picture with acute edema. I think that would be high in a differential in a patient getting gemcitabine. Stasis dermatitis is distal, not so proximal, doesn't involve the abdomen, although you may think of it as sort of a family member of acute inflammatory edema. 
I think those would be the highest on my differential diagnosis. But I think anything within the pseudocellulitis differential is probably fair game. But again, once you've seen the distribution as being bilateral, symmetric, and preferentially avoiding areas of natural pressure, most of the other entities move out of the differential diagnosis, and then this becomes really a clinical diagnosis. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, definitely can think of other things, but I agree that this kind of rises to the top when you're thinking about uh, this condition and, and, the, and the most common things in the differential. So you see, go or you consult to see a patient in the hospital. They're very sick, anasarca, other comorbidities. You see the, the you know, now as you've sort of looked at this paper and maybe as a clinician, you sort of know about this condition, but suspect other things as well. How do you work it up in the setting of clinical presentation? So it's always difficult when you're trying to make a clinical diagnosis because the thing you don't want to miss the thing that would really hurt the patient, especially when they're critically ill and in the ICU. So I take that question very seriously. But having done this for a long time now, there aren't I can't really think of many things that would present exactly as this one does. So as long as you have not got another reasonable entity in, in your differential diagnosis, this really becomes a bedside diagnosis. But if something is atypical, for example, if you saw something that was unilateral or um, maybe only on the abdomen um, or maybe only on one buttock and didn't spare areas of pressure, this differential diagnosis would become much, much lower on your list and you'd be working up infectious etiologies first. You don't want to miss something that is life-threatening in patients in the ICU, obviously, when they are so sick and they have so many comorbidities. So anything atypical that didn't fit in that classic picture that we're trying to describe and, and characterize in the paper would probably warrant a very full workup for infectious etiologies first. Um, inflammatory etiologies would be second. Something like sweet syndrome, subcutaneous sweet syndrome could also rarely look like this. Um, Autoinflammatory syndromes, familial to Mediterranean fever, could be unilateral, uh, erythema and edema. Um, so when you start to look at unilateral diseases or one area in particular involved with sparing of the others, this entity moves much lower on your differential diagnosis. Is there anything in the uh, category of paniculitis that would enter in the differential in this condition? It's a great question. So paniculitides should be more um, nodular with multiple identifiable lesions that may then coalesce, but it wouldn't be a confluent, broadly edematous plaque, in my opinion. You may see multiple nodules, and at the distribution of the upper lateral thighs and the abdomen would be great for paniculitis, but the lesions would be individual subcutaneous nodules and plaques. Um, and then I think about other infections that may be more atypical in subcutaneous nodules and plaques in the differential diagnosis of a paniculitis, which would include something like cryptococcosis. That's a common way cryptococcosis would present in an immunosuppressed transplant patient, for example. But not the confluence and not without the nodules. Yes, I agree there. And it also makes sense to possibly, to me, to consider some forms of cutaneous lymphoma, but again, I don't think they would present in this way. 
but they may present as a confluent erythema with edema, especially yes. a very sick patient. In a very sick patient, um, but I think the where the lesions begin and end, um, although they may coalesce, they are, I do think, again, that's in sort of the differential of paniculitis, for example, subcutaneous paniculitis, like T-cell lymphoma, which would be subcutaneous nodules with overlying edema and erythema. But again, the confluence of the lesions um, wouldn't be so uniform as they are in acute inflammatory edema. But I love the discussion of differentials. That's, that's always fun. It always is fun. So I noticed that in the article you uh, did biopsies on certain patients but not others. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why was that? And then the second question there would be, what were the histopathological findings? Yeah. So um, I will start by saying that sort of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier in this discussion, when you start to see patterns that you haven't seen before or you're trying to give something a name or you're trying to understand it, you want to understand everything about it. So our first patients um, did get biopsies. But when we realized that our biopsies were really nonspecific, mostly we were seeing some papillary dermal edema, um, maybe there was purpura secondary to the biopsy, or maybe the patient was thrombocytopenic. The inflammatory infiltrate was not really specific, had a few neutrophils and lymphocytes in there, maybe some um, edemophages, you know, in one or two biopsies. But it was really not a very specific finding. In fact, it often came back as this is nonspecific, could be seen in cellulitis. Um, and when we do biopsies on critically ill patients, we almost always do a biopsy for tissue culture, which includes mycobacteria, um, bacteria, and fungi. And those all came back negative. And so we were recognizing then that we were finding something that wasn't specific for a diagnosis, it looked mostly like cellulitis, so clinically the patient didn't look like there was truly a cellulitis. We know that bacterial cellulitis is rarely, if ever, bilateral. And stains for infectious organisms and um, cultures for infectious organisms was negative. And at that point, we started to realize that this was much more of a clinical diagnosis and we stopped biopsying patients because we felt like the procedure was not necessary and was putting somebody through an unnecessary procedure when we felt that we were really leaning towards a clinical diagnosis. So that became a judgment call um, as I was starting to recognize the pattern more um, and realize that the pathology was, was not very helpful most of the time. Again, emphasizing that you we're know, looking at a clinical diagnosis. Yes. You know, going back to that fun thing that we do in differential diagnosis, what about scleroderma? Does that enter into the thought process here? That's a great question. So, yes, scleroderma is one of the things that will present, especially early on, as acute edema and erythema. But the distribution isn't great, and you could get this to resolve with resolution of the edema. So you can actually watch after compression that this goes away. Um, And the histologic findings were not consistent for scleroedema. But I love that thought in the differential diagnosis. Um, I've seen it on the abdomen. I've never seen it on the upper thighs. But it is a possibility. Yes. And the other thing I think of is from thyroid disease, the uh, from severe hypothyroidism, sclerimixedema. Yeah. Also, um, yes, uh, that, that tends again. to be a little bit firmer and on the shins, but any of those sort of edematous 
um, sclerosing conditions, when they begin, sometimes are, you just see edema. And yes, the nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, often, which we don't really see anymore, or I have not seen in a very long time, did begin as acute edema. Um, so I think your idea that the sclerosing diseases as an initial presentation may be primarily edematous and then become sclerosing is a very good observation and one that um, should be considered in the differential diagnosis. But what happens in, in the acute inflammatory edema is that there never is a fibrosing stage, that uh, this is acute and resolves with resolution of, of the edema. But again, I, I think that that's a very astute observation. Like you said, it's, it's it's tremendous fun to to think about these things and something we right. often don't get to do as much in private practice as we'd like. Uh, so uh, given all this information that we have, you have these very, very sick patients who are getting this uh, acute inflammatory edema that you've worked up and figured out uh, this is what it is based on either clinical findings or a combination of clinical findings and, and pathology. What are your ideas about the pathophysiology of the condition? Um, so to be very frank, um, this is a hypothesis. I don't think this is proven anywhere. But given that almost all of our patients were obese um, or overweight at least, they um, had poor lymphatic return. And then if you looked at our patients in terms of fluid overload, almost all of them were, were in some way fluid overloaded or described as being anasarchic. And so in some, that was because they got too much fluid or maybe they were hyperalbuminemic or maybe they had organ dysfunction. But at the end of the day, the description of them was anasarchic. So when you combine those two things together, both fluid overload and poor lymphatic return, the hypothesis is that there are micro tears within the tissue that results in inflammation. And so that's why we hypothesize that you see so much overlying erythema and well as changes consistent with edema, such as Poderon's changes and no involvement of areas of pressure. So I'm going to guess that the treatment of this condition is reassurance, but you may have some other things to say about that. But is there anything that could be done to foster the improvement of this condition in the severely sick hospitalized patients? Yeah, so first it's to reassure the team that if they've started antibiotics for this entity, they can stop antibiotics, that optimization of fluid status is paramount, resuming as normal function as you can. So, for example, if somebody is in renal failure, do they need dialysis? Trying to um, maintain the fluid homeostasis as best as possible, and then compression where you can apply compression will all help this resolve. And many patients, as those issues get addressed while they're in the ICU anyway, this will get better on its own, because a lot of those issues are exactly what the ICU physicians are working on. Um, and so when they're optimized, this will resolve. Well... Do you have any last thoughts to leave with our listeners or maybe a brief summary that they can take away? Sure. So I, I think just to quickly summarize, um, acute inflammatory edema is an entity that tends to present in, in critically ill hospitalized patients, often in the ICU, who tend to have a high BMI and are in a setting of acute volume overload. Um, it presents with erythema, edema, and proteron changes, typically on the thighs, but also the abdomen, 
the buttocks, maybe the flanks, but spares areas of pressure, including those applied by hospital staff, such as compression devices. Um, the differential diagnosis really mostly includes garden variety cellulitis and any of the cellulitides, the pseudocellulitides, and it resolves with compression and optimization of the fluid status. I think the biggest message I take home from being able to present this is that I so appreciate the opportunity to be in the hospital as often as I am to be able to then recognize patterns and, and bring them into a paper that others can read and learn from. And um, I think we all try and do that, whether it's in the private practice setting or the academic setting or the surgical setting or pediatrics. And that's one of the things I value so much about dermatology. There's always something new to discover and get excited about. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that today. As I do as well, I enjoyed this discussion thoroughly. Certainly, uh, in my practice setting, being in uh, community dermatology, you know, in community dermatology and private practice, uh, we do not get to see the acuity that you're seeing in your academic practice. Uh, but it's certainly interesting to to talk about and to bring up all the different uh, differentials and, and treatment options that could be, and especially to learn about a new entity. I think there's something that hasn't been described before and that you guys have discovered there, and uh, as, uh, congratulations on your discovery and uh, for bringing this, to, bringing this to all of us. So from behalf of Dialogues and Dermatology, Dr. Fox, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. I'm so excited. Thank you so much.